Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to Strangers in a Cinema, a film show in three acts. I am with your co-host Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you? I am very well, Paul. I'm very well indeed. Not least because we're building up to the big weekend, aren't we, Paul? The big weekend coming up this weekend. Um, incredibly excited. It is my stag do this weekend, starting on Friday, finishing, I get, I'm guessing, on Sunday? Correct, yes. Is that yeah, right? You're allowed, I don't really you're allowed know to know that the much. You're allowed to know how long yeah, you're away I, for. <laughs> d- details are, are scant at this point. Um, and I would say that that's a combination of sort of tradition of stag do's where the the, uh, the groom-to-be uh, doesn't know much about what's going to go on. And the other reason for that is that my brother is in charge of it. And my brother sort of takes the laid-back, slightly um, devil-may-care attitude to life that I have and sort of multiplies it by a factor of sort of five to ten. So his approach, I would imagine, because I'm not on that side of the organisation, has been lax at times? Uh, nothing's planned at all, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> no hotel, or is it, No Paul? hotels or have is been it? booked, we're not staying anywhere. Um, you've got to get on a train at a certain time. We don't even know where we're getting off that train. Funny thing is, Paul, funny thing is um, on this, that uh, we I now know uh, through various avenues that we're going to the great city of Liverpool, former cultural capital, and um, or City of Culture, I believe. And I was watching the uh, UFC 228 countdown today on which the voiceover said fighter Darren Till, who comes from Liverpool, uh, made his way up through the ranks, having been born and raised in one of the most dangerous cities you can imagine, was the words that they used on this thing. I've been well. I've been once. I've, well, I've been twice to Liverpool. I didn't. It didn't strike me as one of the most dangerous cities I can imagine. I to be honest, so, I don't yeah, think. Seems a little harsh. I don't think the it, UFC presented. Yeah, there. I think the Americans might have got a bit carried away <laughs> on that one. I've been to Liverpool and it's lovely, and I'm really looking forward to going back. So yeah, we will be back safe and sound for next week's episode. You know, believe you me. But before that, we've got this episode, haven't we, Paul? And on this episode, we're focusing on technology the kind of technology that's been used over the last weeks to organize this extravaganza in Liverpool I'm sure uh, we are going to sort of build the show off the central tentpole which is a top five modern tech films on either side of that Paul though in act one and act three we're going to give you a review of uh, Anish Shiganti's uh, thriller computer-based thriller searching in act one and then in act three we're going to have a discussion about what Paul and I think makes for great sci-fi I know you're a big sci-fi guy Paul I'm kind of a big sci-fi guy depending on what it is Uh, We're going to get into our thoughts on what makes things great and what doesn't really work when it comes to sci-fi, at least in our opinions. But before that, as we always do about this time, Paul, let's get into what you've been watching. What have you, sir, been watching in the last week? What have I been watching in the last week? Well, it was... I finally caught up with... um, You know when we did that that thing I did last week? Like, what do you mean you've never seen? Or I can't believe you've never watched. new feature. Right, so I can't believe you've never watched Mary Poppins, mate. Why haven't you seen Mary Poppins? Uh, no one's ever asked me that in that voice, but people have mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, who I is that? Who is that? Some guy, some, some guy from, down the, some guy from the most dangerous city on the uh, in in the country, I think. <laughs> uh, so yes, I finally watched Mary Poppins for the first time. I thought I might have watched it as a child, and then the more I watched this film, the more I think no, I no, I didn't. So I don't know what my parents are thinking, not raising me on Mary Poppins. Um, 
I have to say, I really quite enjoyed it. I think that the song and dance scenes, the song and dance scenes, are nothing short of fantastic. Like they are by far the highlight of the film. Uh, and some of the visual, the, some of the visual animation that goes into this is absolutely incredible. There's a there's sort of a live action over animation scene uh, where they do some horse racing, which in places the film does look a little bit dated. It is from 1964. You've got to give it the benefit of the doubt there. But yeah, some of the imagination here is just superb. Song and dancing is absolutely incredible. I will say, though, that I did find two hours, 20 minutes is a bit too... Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a, is it that it long? It is that long. I have no memory. Uh, and I think it's been on in the background a number yeah, of times. Yeah, there are a number of places where you think, yeah, this, this could have been cut down. But then... Dick Van Dyke starts singing again. Julie Andrews starts singing. You're like, yay, I'm back into it again. More song and dancing. More songs and dancing. But yeah, Mary Poppins, it's great. Uh, it deserves its reputation. Um, and it was a timely viewing because Emily Brunt is playing the role uh, in December in Mary Poppins Returns, interestingly enough. So quite excited to see that now after watching this. So that didn't disappoint, which is good. Um, the next film that I caught up with this week that I want to talk about is, uh, I think, the film that broke kind of Denny Villeneuve um, well certainly broke him and to a lot wider audience and, and, and got him into Hollywood uh, certainly opened some doors for him uh, and this is Ensemble, uh which is I don't think too bad pronunciation of it Pete do you want to pick me up on that or was that alright? No mate I think that was that was delightful I felt like I was back in Paris <laughs> Cheers Pete thanks uh, yeah I mean Denny Villeneuve and regular listeners of the show uh, should know how much love I have for this man I think he is in an incredible filmmaker I think he, he's just he's just rolling out hit after hit after hit. Sicario is a film that I absolutely adore. Blade Runner 2049, my best film of last year. Um, yeah, just an incredible filmmaker. And Ensemble's does not disappoint. It is a very, very powerful drama. Um, incredibly well shot with some brilliant twists in the story as well. That might be too far for some people. My wife thought the twist at the end perhaps went a little bit too far. Uh, I didn't. I just thought this was just another incredibly powerful piece of filmmaking from one of the greatest directors working today. There we go. High praise indeed for Ensemble. Yeah, and, and I'm going to dive straight into your emerging new category of uh, what do you mean you've never seen Paul? Because <laughs> I, I, to my shame, have still not caught up with Ensemble's. And, and like when you put that into the um, offline like WhatsApp group that we have around this show, I actually didn't reply to you and like I'm quite notorious for not replying to stuff or not replying quickly <laughs> but in this case the reason I didn't reply is because there was just that part of me that felt too proud to come on and just say no mate haven't seen it even though we've had loads of conversations over the last like five years about how we have to both catch up with this movie I was like yeah Paul's got there and I haven't I'm lagging behind so yeah th that's on my no, to-do list definitely catch up with it. well yeah I mean it's, it's just as bad for me I said we were talking the other day I'm trying to avoid stuff on Netflix and Amazon Prime and that kind of thing kind of intention at the moment because I've got so many Blu-rays that have just sat on the shelf for years and years and years and Ensemble was one of these I think I've probably owned it for about four or five years if not more it's just sat on the shelf unwatched so uh, yeah I'm trying to get through that backlog um, but before I get through any more of the backlog the other film I wanted to talk about this week Pete I know we covered this when it came out I know we did a review of it uh, I watched Avengers Infinity War that little known film I don't know if anyone's heard of for the second time uh, and I have to say, I enjoyed this a lot more second time round. I liked it enough first time round. Second time round, I was absolutely transfixed to the screen. I just thought it was epic. So I don't know what's changed my mind. I don't know why my mind has been changed. Maybe it caught me in the wrong mood when I first saw it at the cinema. I didn't. One of my criticisms, I think, of it that I said on the show is that it only just about holds the plot lines together. I take that back. I think it holds together remarkably well on second viewing. 
uh, and the action scenes are spectacular. It's up there for me with Mission Impossible 6 as probably one of the action films of the year on second viewing. So that's my reassessment of Avengers Infinity War. Uh, have you seen it twice yet, Pete, or not? No, I haven't. And it's one of those, man, where like a little bit like what happens um, towards the end of that movie, I think people are aware now. My memory of Infinity War is sort of like faded and sort of blown away a little bit in the breeze. Um, uh, yeah, so I, maybe I have to go back to it rather than like writing it off as, as a bit long and a bit forgettable because I know at the time I had a good time with the movie. Like in the cinema, I had a good time. I just haven't thought about it much since. So maybe I do. So need also, to go it's, back it's Thanos as well, just as the villain. Like I think watching it second time round, you do get a much better uh, interpret, much better idea of just how what an incredible villain he actually is. Especially when when Marvel's one of Marvel's weaknesses has been villains in the past. This year, you've had um, uh, Michael B. Jordan as Eric Killmonger in Black Panther, and then. Uh, Josh Brolin as Thanos this time round. Thanos is just a brilliant villain because you, you second time round, you kind of find yourself rooting for him a little bit, which is great. So yeah, I would I would urge you to reassess it based on I enjoyed it a lot more second time round. Uh, but enough from me, Pete. What have you been watching this week? So Paul, um, I, I I'm not apologising for this because it keeps this section nice and short. But I've watched two two whole films in the last week, Paul. Uh, for you and I, that is atrociously low. Uh, for regular people, that's like a normal week, I think, or or probably an an excessively film based week, perhaps. Um, the reason for that maybe is because I'm planning a wedding, but also is because I've got really into uh, Jack Ryan, the Tom Clancy thing that's on uh, Amazon Prime now. I'm not going to talk about it. It's not a TV show here, although I think the lines are becoming increasingly blurred. But it is really really good. Check it out uh, eight episodes it'll take you about seven hours so first for actual feature films paul is a movie called sweet francaise coming back to our french uh, theme of a couple of these movies uh, this one is from british london-born director saul dibb who directed uh, bullet boy which was well received and then also the duchess with kira knightley which is probably more uh, an indicator of what was to come from sweet francaise now the things that would attract me to a movie like this paul are uh, well probably the first three stars credited maybe four if I go past that um we've got Michelle Williams Kristen Scott Thomas that's enough already uh Margot Robbie and we also have Matthias Schoenartz so like it's a really really high caliber cast and they are drawn together to tell this story about the early years of the Nazi occupation of France so we're in this like historical setting which is well presented and well staged and relatively well framed this is an attractive film and some of these people let's be honest are quite attractive people although margot robbie wears a very odd dark haired wig in this and never really feels like she fits in this movie and i've got a lot of love for her in other projects but it feels like i'm on a bad run having reviewed terminal i think last week which is not good and this movie now um and then the, i think the big problem that i had with uh, the movie sweet francaise is that although it is all very well staged and, and like i say well presented the emotional heart of the movie is not as uh i don't know it doesn't beat as hard as i wanted it to it basically the the central um stakes are set in the fact that michelle williams character who is french although speaking english throughout without an accent maybe another side problem um is uh, becoming romantically involved attracted to as any sane person would the matthias schoenartz character who is in fact a german soldier so it's like this forbidden love central story in a really difficult set of circumstances to say the least 
with all that, you would think that it would be like a, a kind of powerful, uh, wrenching, moving tale of how the human heart can like bridge the gap between these diametrically opposed sides. But it all feels a bit flat. It all feels a bit happy to just exist. It all feels a bit like the actors here are having a... A, a kind of high-level game of dress-up and, like, make-believe, which I guess is what acting essentially <laughs> is. But, <laughs> but, you, should, but you shouldn't be... Th for sure, but you shouldn't be thinking about that when you're watching the movie. No. I should be able to suspend my disbelief beyond that. And, you know, for the umpteenth time, one of my favourite living actresses is Michelle Williams. One of my favourite bilingual actresses, if I've ever got the chance to give such Top a five niche bilingual countdown, <laughs> is Kristen Scott Thomas. But, like, even Kristen Scott Thomas here, who speaks fluent French isn't able to use French, I think maybe once or twice in the movie, but generally... So what doesn't work then? Why do you think it's so flat? Is it because that, all, that sense all of these all acting? Or... All of these French characters are speaking English is problematic. Some of the German characters are speaking German and are actually German actors. But then there's like this, this, this dissonance between these two sets of performances. And like I say, just the central love story didn't grab me. So yeah, it looks nice. It had little effect and I won't think about it that much in the future. And that's a shame because, you know, such talent on display, you'd sort of hope for a lot more. That one, Sweet Front says, it was released in 2014 to relatively middling reviews, unsurprisingly. Um, the second one for this week is uh, one that I think I mentioned last week, actually. I finally got round to going back to Black Pond, which is the feature debut from Will Sharp, the guy at the centre of and responsible for writing, uh, at least, yeah, writing, I believe, uh, both seasons of uh, Flowers. Yeah, he wrote Flowers, yeah. I didn't know. Is this a film he's written or directed? Uh, this film was, I believe, co-written... Uh, between uh, two people, Tom Kingsley and Will Sharp, and then was directed by both of those same guys as well. So I think this is kind of like... Oh, been, where did you find this? Th this is their what? first sort of feature having graduated uh, film school, I believe. Uh, I believe. Although, I don't know, Will Sharp might have studied something else. We'll see. We'll talk about that on another episode, perhaps. But the point here is what you get with Black Pond is, um, I, I guess, two things. One is a film about an outsider coming into uh, a dysfunctional family, Paul, uh, in the countryside, Paul, um, and the sort of... See, uh, there seems to be a pattern. Yeah, and, and the sort of <laughs> ripples that that causes in the way that the sort of damaged um, uh, emotional states of the various characters are somehow drawn together through various forms of tragedy. This is all going to seem very familiar to anyone who's watched any of the episodes or seasons of this incredible show, Flowers, which, which is uh, available to sort of stream now. Um, on the other side, the thing that is interesting to me about uh, Black Pond is that we have the first appearance, having been released from prison, of Chris Langham. And I think I mentioned this on the show before. Chris Langham was this guy who was on, like, The Thick of It, the TV show, the Armando Iannucci TV show, who was implicated and then charged with sex offences um, relating to research, apparently, on from his side, research online that he did into child pornography for a role, which was deemed to be by the authorities, uh, you know, a predilection for images of children. Um, it's a, a kind of... A fascinating subject, I think, to read around. And it's really interesting here to see that the role that Chris Langham plays as the, I guess, um, 
uh, uh, help me out, the lead in Flowers. Oh, Julian Barrett. Julian Barrett, yeah, thank you. Kind of like the Julian Barrett-esque character here. It, it sort of speaks to his own personal situation in certain interesting ways. Aside from that, Simon Amstall is kind of in a different movie. He plays uh, in this movie a therapist who therapizes Will Sharp's character, kind of, although he's more interested in making fun of him. And the like scenes in themselves are funny. They just don't really fit in this okay. movie. So it's like an odd sort of side cameo. But yeah, for any fans of Flowers, I would say it's worth it uh, for basically seeing what is the template for, I think, one of the best new t- television series. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love Flowers, so I'd be very intrigued to see it. Where did you find it? Uh, Black Pond, I got on disc again. Big ups uh, once more to Cinema Paradiso because uh, uh, okay. yeah, I got, yeah. got it from them. So it is, out so it is available. Cool. I think maybe only on DVD and not Blu-ray. But, um, you know, you can you can deal with that if you're, you're interested. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of this regular section, Paul. We will be back in just a moment with Act One, our review of the John Cho starring film Searching. And back we are. So this is Searching, which is the uh, which is a, what's the best way to describe this? A kidnap thriller based entirely on computer screens. Well, I I would say a missing persons a missing persons thriller. I think it's a bit more ambiguous than, than necessarily um, a kidnap. But yeah, you're right. All based on screens. That's the key, isn't it? And the film that we talked about, Paul, that is the clearest, I guess, reference point or starting point with this is the movie from 2014, Unfriended. Right, um, I think we were. It's the same producer, so it's Timor Berbermantov, whose surname I always butcher. So apologies. So it's the guy that directed Wanted and the Day and Night Watch films, uh, a Russian director. So he's the producer on both of these, interestingly enough. So he seems to be uh, a big fan of sort of ushering in. I've heard this described as a new genre. Pete, would you go as far as to say this is a new genre? Sign of like films on screens i suppose it's probably a good way it's probably the best way i can describe it would you go as far as say is it as a new genre or just a new approach I, on sort of traditional genre material i think yeah i mean i think that that like people talk about when they say that the Blair Witch Project was the first found footage film and of course people point back to things like Hannibal Holocaust I mean this isn't the first film of its kind but I think the films of this kind are limited and they're limited by the fact that that technology has only been in place for a certain amount of time so from that point of view yeah I think it it is kind of an emerging new kind of film how much it will have in terms of like legs and lifespan I guess is open for debate Um, we'll see if this thing kind of runs its course in the way that found footage did and I mean Take this, for example, Paul. The the film that we're talking about here, Searching, took 13 days. They had a 13-day shoot. The film to complete... The film to complete took two years. Wow. Because what we had is all of this pre-production and post-production to get it looking the way that it does. The performances are almost like an aside to all of the the sort of... uh, tech work the fitting for this episode that went into making this thing come to life so i guess credit to all manner of people including the producer you mentioned and there's a second uh, producer here as well which is uh sev ahanian who's also co-writer on this thing and this guy uh was a producer on fruitvale station um so had some caliber i guess coming into um coming into this thing and then First time feature director, uh, director I should say, Agnish Shaganti, who um, we mentioned on a previous episode, I think, Paul, his own brother went on Letterbox and sort of gushed about how proud he was. So, like, there's a lot of good feeling towards this guy right now because I feel like this is a bit of an underdog story, getting this thing made in all of those uh, arduous weeks and months, but also in then getting it 
distributed wide enough that people are actually getting to see it. So all of that is kind of set up, isn't it, Paul? Setting the table for this discussion. Um, before we get into deeper thoughts on searching, here's a little clip. Hey, sweetheart. Where are you? Study group. I'm gonna go all night. Oh, one more thing. I want to know about the final you took today. I'm Margo. I'm 15. Student. 911, what's your emergency? I'm calling to report a missing person. Okay, who is this regarding? My daughter. Yeah, as we've as we said, it's it's I would say as you said, like a missing person sort of thriller. I would say it's certainly a thriller. So a missing persons thriller, told entirely on on phone screens and computer screens and that kind of things. We've already said. I think one of the first things I kind of wanted to raise about this is that that it could very much be seen as a gimmick uh, in order to hook people into the cinemas without a shadow of a doubt. And I think if you would watch the trailer, you'd be forgiven for kind of writing this off as a bit of a gimmicky movie. Uh, Unfriended, I think, was fairly effective considering it's using this. But I think what I will say is that actually in searching, I think the whole thing works remarkably well for the film. I think it actually it actually does add something to it. Um, and for me, it rescues what otherwise could have been a fairly unremarkable film, I think. Um, so, yeah, and I think so. I wanted to make that clear. It's not a gimmick. It does work for the film. Pete, where do you stand on the, the technique itself before we go deeper into, in, yeah. into our thoughts? No, I think I think that's a great point. I, and I'm totally with you. And I think that almost this is a story that, yes, it would be like a second rate thriller if it weren't for the uh, central conceit that everything is sort of on these screens. But I think that central conceit is absolutely uh, essential to what the director's trying to do here because this is a film that is so... Con it's, it's fundamentally concerned with investigating the way that we live like modern lives, right? Like through through checking our phones all the time, through being on computer screens when we get home in the evening and when we wake up in the morning. And so I think that, that yeah, both the film wouldn't succeed without this gimmick, but also the film wouldn't exist without it. I don't think the director would have been interested in making the thriller without this element. Um, and I think he's a guy who comes from a sort of techie background anyway. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. And then where to go from here? I mean, at the centre of this, we've got John Cho, who is an actor that I think if you mention the name to most people, they'd think like, this guy is a goof. This guy is in the Harold and Kumar franchise. Uh, I think that's where he is probably best known. Uh, would you agree? He's Sulu and Mr. Sulu in Star Trek. Right, yeah. So it shows how much I know about those films. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This on the sci-fi episode. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, that, that bodes well for, for later on. Um, but, but yeah, th this guy here has to take on a role that is very serious. I mean, very, very serious. From the outset, um, I mentioned the last time when we spoke a little bit about the movie on the last episode that um, there's this initial setup using technology entirely, which is incredibly effective, which shows the uh, sort of swelling uh, romance, building of a family between he and his wife and then the birth of their daughter and then his wife's decline as a result of uh, cancer that, like... I found myself watching what I thought was going to be this kind of vaguely gimmicky thriller and, and like welling up within about 10 minutes of going into this. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I said, the, the, I said the beginning, I think, was incredibly effective. It, 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 it hit me in a way I didn't expect it to, to be honest, and quite quickly out of the gate as well. So, yeah, I think it, it worked. It worked remarkably well. Um, I think 
where to go next on this one? I think I, I'm going to go with what I didn't like about it, Pete, I think, before we get into the, yeah, the elements that I did like. Um, so for me, it's when it kind of drifted into more, it drifted into slightly silly, silly um, some of the plot devices I think were a bit silly. So the relationship with the policewoman, uh, I think was just, it just wouldn't have happened um, in the way that it happened in this. And I think that was a bit silly. And I think it drifted in a bit too much into silly genre cliches towards the end. <laughs> Um, in order to give this twist ending. And also, I don't think it helped that some stupid bastard in the cinema did sort of guessed the twist and then just went, this is what's happened. <laughs> yes, yeah, I couldn't imagine. The cinema. Uh, I couldn't yeah, imagine that would, yeah, so, that would help. So that was fairly annoying. Um, but no, I just think, yeah, in, part, in parts the film was a bit too silly for its own good, and I think it drifted into genre cliche a bit too much there. It's not to say that I didn't like it, but I don't think I liked it as much as some people have done, although I can appreciate... A lot of what what you need, I think, what you need to look at to the strengths of this film is probably beyond its genre um, and beyond the fact it's a it's a missing persons thriller and have and have a look at what it actually says about how we use social media and that kind of thing. And I think that's what probably I'll bring you into that to be honest, because I know you, you share your you share the thoughts on that with me really. So yeah, I don't think it's entirely successful, but I think it's good, and I think the reasons are it's good are about I think they're about to be what you're going to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the the way that we've come down slightly on two different sides of the sort of same line is that um maybe the things that you talk about as being sort of like th slightly silly genre conventional things i guess i appreciated from the point of view that i felt like the movie was doing two things like on the one hand you had this fairly thoughtful investigation of the impact that like uh, social media and modern technology and and you know facetiming and and instant messaging and stuff have on the day-to-day -day existence of people in the world that you can fully relate to and on the other hand it wasn't uh depriving you of a kind of popcorny knockabout plot albeit with serious central themes but like this kind of enjoyable exciting movie at the same time because otherwise we could get bogged down in just like hey look what we're doing with the technology and, and maybe I can see that sometimes it, it, it yeah I we can't talk about the end of the movie other than what you've said which is that it's a little bit twisty but there there is a sequence that plays out in a way where you think well this is very convenient for this film uh, and, I, yeah. and I appreciate it on that level maybe on another level I, I would tend to agree with you a little bit more that it, it by stretches credibility to some extent but i think my my goodwill towards searching like vastly outweighs anything that i would that i would criticize and and i think that like what we're going to get onto this later paul when we get to act three but like one thing to me that is so important about connecting with a movie that deals with technology is feeling like it has a tangible understanding of the way that that same technology would affect the audience and the way that we can find the film to be relatable and not... Do you remember that time like where there was that glut of movies based around uh, cell phones? When cell phones became a thing, right? There are a load of like J-horror movies and there are a load of even uh, Western Hollywood movies as well where like the central conceit was just so frustrating because you felt like you're just pushing an agenda that you want the central plot to be about this particular phone or whatever. In this case, I just bought it. I just bought it because I felt like this family would communicate in this way. Uh, this issue would arise as it did. And the investigation from the dad into what has happened to his daughter, it very much reminded me of like the Ariel Shulman uh, thing, Catfish. Um, and, and way back then when we sort of thought as a, a, a sort of like 
popular consciousness, I guess, we started thinking more about the idea that I identity online is is uh, often misleading and untrustworthy and stuff like in the same way. I think it's hard to come out of this film if you invest in it without thinking, my God, like the webs have been spun and we're all dancing in the silk when it comes to like how much of my life I spend looking at my phone, checking things online, putting information online. And like that's not news, but it's the kind of thing that when you're reminded of it seems ever more like prescient. I yeah, and I think the other th- what this the other thing this film does well, uh, or very well in fact, is there are as 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 the film goes on and he then the social media kind of turns against John Cho's mm. character, uh, and what it does really well is the fact that if if you've ever been thankfully it's not something that I partake in, but sort of online trolling or basically online bullying is when the, the social media turns against him and you kind of see his reaction to that. I think is a very it, it does an incredible because it's all based on screens and you can kind of see it pop up on his screen like you are you can re, you can really feel some of the hate coming out of the internet which is something that I think because you watch it on a screen aimed at from the character's eye view it almost feels like it's aimed yeah. at you so it gives you a much better it gives you a much better indication of what that on just getting that sort of pages and pages and pages of online hate must must actually yeah. feel like so I think that it really makes you question how you use social media and whether or not this sort of this, the court of social media is is a good or bad thing and i think you come the film sort of comes down to the fact it's actually it's quite a bad yeah. thing uh but yeah and it, is that, it does that incredibly well mm. and i think it, it does it makes you question how we use social media and, and certainly the validity of it and whether you know whether that's important or not um and it, yeah does that yeah well. I, I think that's that's an exceptional point paul and i, I guess i hadn't even really thought about it that directly but i think it's absolutely true like when you watch um something like the uh, gaspar noe film enter the void right and you have this first person perspective including blinking eyelids that that cover the camera intermittently um and it puts you right in the position for the awful stuff that happens at the beginning of that movie like I'd never thought of it in that way, but we all have within our regular consciousness a kind of rectangular view of the world through whatever screen we happen to be looking at. And when you bang one of those in front of an entire cinema audience, it, it yeah, I think that's another reason why this film is effective because you're in, in an environment that you're so very familiar with, which is looking at sort of windows loaded up on a screen. Like you say, when those windows are full of sort of bile and, and hatred and stuff, it has a power, powerful impact on, on someone and sort of implicates you in that world a bit like a, you know, a Michael Haneke sort of um, funny games type implication where you feel like, yeah, I'm very much a part of this because I, you know, I'm involved in social media activity on the daily. And so it's hard for me to sit back and say like, oh, we've all become too obsessed with social media. As I walk out of the screening, Paul, and get my phone out so that I can put a little film review up on Letterboxd or so that I can can check my Instagram or do something like that. So yeah, I don't know, dude. Like I think that Searching is one of those films that I just hope um, finds a decently large audience because I think that, I'm not saying it's sort of like some watershed important in inverted commas movie, but I do think it is a superior, telling of a story using this fairly new method of storytelling i guess visually and on the cinema screen yeah i think i'd pretty much agree as i said i would say don't don't be put off by the fact it looks like a gimmick film it is much more than that and yeah check check it out i said i I didn't love it but i think for what it does what it what it does do it does do when it gets it right it gets it very right 
and certainly the bits that it get yeah it's it's very good for the most part i didn't like all of it but i would recommend seeing it it's more than it's more than the gimmick certainly. talking about more than a gimmick paul uh, other podcasts sometimes <laughs> do top five countdowns and we'd never copy such a format but what we have got coming up is a uh, best five leaderboard of uh, films yeah what we're coming back with in act two will be our top five tech films right after this So back we are with our top five uh, technology films or sort of science fiction films, I suppose. These are these are films that involve technology in some way, whether that be existing technology or future technology. Uh, we've gone down the contemporary route again, as we've done in the top five. So I think certainly all of mine are post 2000, if not later, in fairness. I don't know where you stand on that one, Pete, but I think we went for yeah, four the, more the, recent ones. Yeah, I, I'm on the same page, man, uh, on the same um, digital page. So that excludes such big hitters as maybe 2001 or The Matrix or that kind of thing. So I think those, I mean, it's fine. We could do we could do a wider list, but the, so those films well, won't be here. Um, yeah, and, and with, with a view to searching that we, we've just been discussing, we wanted to focus more on like modern tech films in the sense that those might capture just something about like the situation more directly that we live in now as opposed to harking back to the concerns of like the 70s or 80s or whatever so yeah, yeah i'm with you i think my earliest entry is 2004 perhaps so um yeah oh, i've got a feeling i know which one that is Pete. uh you, you may well do you may well do uh who is gonna go first you want to go first shall i go first uh you can go first this week because normally i go first don't i so yeah go for it cool okay uh the first one is right disgusting uh number five for me is a 2012 film going by the name antiviral this is a film uh, notable not least because it was written and directed by one brandon cronenberg the son of david cronenberg and um it turns out paul the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree uh david cronenberg of course one of the preeminent body horror directors um, and horror directors i I would say uh, writ large here his son decides that he's going to make his feature film debut as director uh directing a movie about the possibility of buying celebrity illnesses and injecting them into your own biological system paul this This is what we're doing for your stag dude (laughs) <laughs> fantastic get me some get me some uh, flu from darren till or whatever um but yeah it, the, the idea here of course is, the central concern is that we live in a society uh that is so celebrity obsessed that maybe the logical or, or slightly reaching later step of this obsession might be wanting to get closer than close in the sense of having uh, some of the DNA of those people right inside our very own bodies. Um, th- yeah, this film will make you feel ill. Um, that doesn't sound like a, a great recommendation. Something like that movie Contagion, which I find hard to watch because the Soderbergh one, because people are like coughing all the time and it makes people a little bit uncomfortable when I see a lot of people coughing. Um, but I mean, that that's what you would probably expect from the son of David Cronenberg, isn't it, Paul? Feeling a little bit ill. Yeah. Um, if you if you wanted further reason to feel ill, can you imagine who would be in the, the starring role? Do you know who's in the starring role of this movie? I don't. I'm still not caught up with this, actually. I keep meaning to watch it, but then I keep forgetting what it's called. Or well, there might be another film called Antiviral, and possibly, and I keep confusing it. But no, I don't know who's in the starring role. 
the the star of of this movie is one Caleb Landry Jones. Ah, okay. uh, he is yeah. just the guy for this job. Oh, Mr. Creepy. Pasty faced. <laughs> Mr. Creepy, pasty faced Caleb Landry Jones. This is the actor who first appeared on a bicycle uh, around a particularly pivotal scene in No Country for Old Men. Uh, and then came to prominence in like Breaking Bad. Then made this movie somewhere in there. And then is he in Breaking Bad? Yeah, he's he's in he's in Breaking Bad as a, a side creepy character, Paul. Um, but then after that, got on this incredible run after Antiviral with like War on Everyone, Get Out, The Florida Project, American Made, Twin Peaks, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. So like this is one of those uh, Riley Keough types where you chart Caleb Landry Jones' career and you chart a load of films that you're probably going to want to see because they're going to be interesting or gross or creepy who knows um he is your go-to creepy guy so yeah the, all in all antiviral is not fun antiviral is not a comfortable watch antiviral is not something to watch if you're feeling a bit sick or if you're prone to being made to feel sick by the stuff that you see on screen um on the other hand i think that the director as much as the film has been like fairly middling into the the reviews have been fairly middling on this thing uh to veering towards maybe not so positive i think that given the budgetary restrictions of antiviral and given that this is a guy sort of establishing himself or attempting to establish himself i think the film packs quite a um coughing and spluttering punch and i think it's worth time number five antiviral to 2012 what have you got paul uh, so number five i've got uh spike jones's um film her uh which tells the story of joaquin phoenix character uh it's set in a world where everyone's a hipster which is probably one of the most annoying bits about the film um, but yeah, set in basically set in a world where we have an advanced um, sort of person, this AI personal assistant. Actually, now if you think about it, we aren't far off with the advent of Amazon Alexa. Uh, and Joaquin Phoenix's character basically falls in love with his AI assistant. Uh, and who wouldn't fall in love with an AI assistant voiced by Scarlett Johansson? Uh, so I don't really blame him. <laughs> but what it does do, actually, I think it it kind of it's I think it for it foretell again we we'll get to this later on but it's what good sci-fi should do which is kind of foretell future technology um and i think you know i think we we are not far off a situation where we'll be where we'll be having real conversations with with artificial intelligence and then whether or not people will fall in love with that artificial intelligence i don't know i'd be very surprised if it doesn't happen pete um and i think Actually, the way Spike Jones sets up her, I think, is, is very, very good because you it, it builds the, the the AI character or her as such uh, into this into a character that you can fully understand why he would find the character enthralling and in some ways attractive and fall in love with her. Uh, well, Kim Phoenix is uh, one of my favourite actors working at the moment. I think so. He really delivers this material quite well, um, considering that it could have been quite an awkward film and must, must have been fairly goofy. Uh, there must have been some goofy moments when filming it. But yeah, I think her is a is a great example of sci-fi doing what it should do, um, and I think it's quite an effective love story at the same time. I found it to be quite I found it to be quite emotionally engaging as well. So yeah, uh, my number five is her. Pete, what have you got next? So um, yeah, great shout by the way. Um, number four for me, another one maybe a little bit like antiviral that has not been particularly well reviewed, and I think a little bit overlooked. My number four pick is from 2016, the film Nerve, which I think I've talked about before because I think that it is, like I say, underrated. Uh, this is co-directed by Henry Joost and the aforementioned
mentioned Ariel Shulman, the guys who were responsible for Catfish, and then have gone on to make a series of sort of um, future tech concerned, uh, medium budget kind of sci-fi type things. I think this is the best of those. Uh, yes, it's a little bit ripe for like eye rolling dismissal and people sort of writing it off as like silly, gimmicky, you know, uh, I don't know, t t teeny, tweeny junk like like candy floss or something like that that's pretty much what it is it, it, it isn't that and i will tell you why it's a much better film than that actually um it's energetic it's propulsive and it's like rooted in modern day youth culture but it's m rooted in that in a way that seems to me at least as a 34 year old admittedly uh, seems realistic and doesn't fumble in the way that so many films that try and connect with what is making uh, modern youth tick, uh, I think, do fumble. Uh, Emma Roberts and Dave Franco are both incredibly gorgeous and have genuine chemistry in this movie, for a start. Emily Mead is an actor, actress that I like very much, from The Juice, uh, primarily, I guess, and The Leftovers. And she's really good in this at playing, like, and in everything, to be honest, at playing, like, in over her head characters uh, with a little bit of like spunk, uh, not in that way, but, but it's <laughs> it's the central premise. It's the execution of that premise that's like the great strength of this movie. I think there's a simple game here, Paul. You've seen this, right? I have cool. seen it. Yeah. There's a simple game for for people who don't know. There's a simple game in this central conceit of this movie, which is that you, as a user of like a social media type platform, are either a watcher or a player. If you're a player, you have to perform dares on the camera that's on your phone while streaming live to your audience in order to pick up credits, to pick up followers, and to pick up great amounts of prize money in order to, well, firstly benefit yourself financially, but also stay in the competition for like greater and greater possible future rewards the thing is obviously that this quickly escalates into these dares being slightly reckless at first and then life-threatening and then sort of societally at large threatening or devastating to a, a whole community if not it's a bit like the ice bucket challenge if, if not the world. it's a little bit like that <laughs> if the ice bucket was sort of filled with like i don't know Acid. acid yeah let's say acid um now i just want to draw your attention to something very contemporary paul and i you know i, I don't have to try and uh you know i don't need to try too hard to be down with the kids because as you know i am like right in touch with like the the, You're the hippest guy that yeah, I know yeah, by, by a long by a wide margin your words not mine paul your words not mine um <laughs> Just the other weekend, a character called Logan Paul, the kind of shiny skin sack of a YouTuber that people seem to talk about, had a boxing match that was pay-per-viewed on YouTube at $10 a pop against KSI Paul, another YouTuber, following Logan Paul trying to write his personal career ship after he did that thing where he filmed in the Sea of Trees in Japan uh, with a dead body of a victim of suicide in the background. And made a joke about suicide, yeah. What a guy. Yeah, right. Uh, now, take that as the frame for the fact that what is at the centre of nerve is not very far from where we are now. That is exactly the same idea. This Logan Paul guy is trying to do whatever he can to seem relevant, to remain relevant, and to get followers. Those followers equate to money. That money equates to status within society, particularly this one. I think this film is underrated. I think I've made that clear. It's so good, actually, Paul, that even Machine Gun Kelly can't ruin it, and he's, like, relatively compelling. Um, yeah, it, it's plausible. It's underrated. Check it out for yourself. That one is called Nerve. 
What have you got next? Uh, I've got a film that I'm not going to try and explain the plot of, but just to say that it does involve time travel. Um, this is Shane Carruth's Primer from 2004, which is the film I thought might appear on your list somewhere, Pete. I might be wrong. I'm going to go uh, back it's... in time, Paul. I'm going to go back in time just a little bit, just like a half hour to an hour, and delete that from your list so I can only I can only have it on my list and talk about it myself. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so yeah, Primer is a great example, I think, of what would actually happen if time travel would actually be invented, and just how irresponsibly us as human beings would use time travel. And I think that it's, I mean, okay, time it's not a current technology that we're, I would say, we're probably nowhere near inventing time travel at the moment, and there's arguments of whether it will ever even be possible. If it was possible, this is how badly we'd fuck it up. And I think this is it's a great example of that. I don't think the human race should be ever trusted with time travel because we would just do bad things with it. And this film is a prime example of that, no pun intended with the title. Um, it also helps by the fact that it's a brilliantly put together film. It really, really, really demands your attention for all of its short running time uh, and is quite an intense watch. And I challenge anyone to fully grasp Primer first time out, in all honesty. I think it's an incredibly well put together film, but it's more about, again, like, again, good sci-fi for me shows the consequences of technology and when it goes badly wrong and it kind of predicts where we're going to go with it. So, um, Pete, did you want to talk about it now? Is it, is it a similar place on your list or is it, or is it, it much it higher up? You'll hold now. it. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, just to agree with, with like everything you've said and probably don't have too much to add, but we'll get to that. Um, number three on my list, Paul, is from 2009, and this one's a documentary. It is called We Live in Public. Um, this is a documentary that focuses on the life of the dot-com entrepreneur Josh Harris. And this was a guy who sort of came up during the, 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 the boom of the dot-com world in the, in the 90s, I suppose, like late 80s, but more so 90s. And his exploits over the last decade this is the decade between sort of 95 and 2005 i guess um it's directed by ondi timoner the director of dig and other projects female uh, director here uh, this won the grand jury prize uh, at sundance on the year of release which was about 10 years ago like say 2009 but the central story is the is the draw here paul which is that or the, the the central story. Yes, we see like a slice of time with Josh Harris, but the big focus is on this project that he had envisaged, which was going to be the next step in using modern technology and sort of prodding it and seeing what happened. A bit like how you talk about Primer, like what if this thing actually works? And the project they had in mind um, during the sort of mid to late 90s was to create a bunker underground and invite members of the public to go and live in this bunker completely free of charge uh, food provided drinks provided accommodation provided the only thing in his own words that was not free is the video that we capture of you that we own the idea being to monetize okay. the constant streaming of a facility that was rigged to the teeth with cameras on cameras on cameras there's cameras in the bathroom cameras in the toilet cameras by the beds people are caught on camera having sex having private conversations doing everything because the idea is 
we live in public. It went further when the director, the director, the, the, the mind behind this, Josh Harris, decided that he would take his project personal as well. So he installed cameras throughout his own apartment to chart every moment and detail of his relationship with his then girlfriend. Can you believe it, Paul? The relationship didn't last. Uh, <laughs> surprises me. As soon as you have then girlfriend, I'm surprised. Yeah. So all of this uh, is is really fucking compelling to be honest watching it like later on in the day because the project that i speak of came to a quite dramatic conclusion uh, it came to a head well, what does he hope to achieve by this project he he wanted to see i suppose how much privacy people were willing to give away in okay, order to, to live for free yeah, yeah to live for free to gain from that um in terms of notoriety in terms of fame all the things that will I, i'll get to it in just a second because this all came to the head to a head at the dawn of the new millennium uh, around the turn of the year 2000 right with fighting screaming frayed sanity and the new york police department they shut down the project people had gone basically feral they were fighting like i say fighting and fucking and all sorts in this facility um just the, the denouement of my story, Paul, is that on the 18th of July of the year 2000, some six to seven months after the project We Live in Public had been shut down by force, Endemol launched the show Big Brother in the UK, um, ah, okay. which, which may get cancelled soon, but still exists to this day some 18 years later. Um, it's a chilling story, Paul, and it's a story that you would think you would see what happened with this guy who, like like Icarus, kind of flew too close to the sun. And we would realise, yeah. we've gone too far down this track, let's try and put this train into reverse. But instead, I don't feel like we have, do, have done that. And what we're doing instead is like live streaming ourselves almost constantly in the case of many people all around the world. Now, particularly younger people. So that bodes well for the future, doesn't it, Paul? By the way, when I did this list, I realised something about the way that I view technology must be fundamentally negative because I think every entry is about the dangers and not the benefits of technology. I'm pretty sure I'm in the same boat, to be fair. So I think that's sci the sci-fi in general, isn't it? I think it would go into it, what makes, yeah, it, what it makes might, good sci-fi. But yeah, It might turn out that it, that it makes better uh, films as well. Because the film where it's just like, we use technology and everything was hunky-dory doesn't maybe have the, uh, the stakes that, no, that some of these really things have, do. Yeah. So what have you got next, Paul, on your list? It's number three, right? So number three... I've got an animation Pete has made my list, which is always nice to see. Uh, this is Wally, -E, uh, directed by Andrew Stanton from 2008, um, which for the first half of this film, when it is silent and there's not much dialogue, it's a nigh-on perfect piece of cinema. I just, I absolutely, a lot of people said it, I'm not the first person who said that, I absolutely love the first half. Um, it's just incredibly engaging. It's just beautifully animated. Um, and basically, so the story of Wally -E is based around a little, I'd say, trash compacting robot um, who gets picked up by um, a spaceship um, and sort of starts to interact with humans. Um, the trash compacting robot who lives on planets that in the future we just fill with trash. So there's, there's your warning again. Uh, we're going to find other planets and just fill them with rubbish as a species, which we're probably likely to do in all honesty. Um, but it's not just that though. It's also the fact that you've got the humans living in these sort of big arcs essentially. Um, and they are so connected into what they do. There's no physical sort of movement involved. Um, they are all chunted around and because it's Pixar it's done in quite a charming way. Um, so it's kind of sweet, but I think there's a, there's a bittersweet message here in the fact that we've become so sedentary as a people that we don't do anything for ourselves anymore. And if we're not careful, we will let technology take over from us to the point where we are just 
completely reliant on it uh, and if anything were to go wrong with technology uh, we would be fucked as a species and I think Wally does contain that message although in a it kind of hides it quite well I think this is what this is what Pixar are incredibly good at is telling family friendly stories that you can quite happily take the kids to the kids will have a great time and then adults can read more there's always for me another level with a lot of Pixar work and again Wally is one of those films where there's a second level to it and I think that second level is, is a bit of a wake-up call um, for us in general although as we've said as you were saying perhaps in, in the early review are we not already there with how tied we are tied in we are to technology if you look at the fact if you look at the fact now I'm going a little bit deep here but warfare now if uh, the, what probably the most threatening weapon you could actually drop on someone is an electromagnetic pulse that just took out all of our technology mm. that would drive society to a halt um, and I think yeah and I think Wally does it in such a way where it, it does it in sort of an unthreatening way which is very very nice so it makes the message more accessible it isn't certainly as bleak as a lot of sci-fi does as a lot of sci-fi is but that doesn't mean it's a lesser sci-fi work um, and I think it is it should be regarded as a great sci-fi film and not just a great animation yeah you make a strong case I hadn't considered it for the list but I think you do make a really strong case and as it goes Paul and, and incidentally I'm actually writing an algorithm at the moment that will give sort of um, overly emphatic overly caffeinated reviews of films and then I'm just going to plug it in and then I don't have to bother doing the show anymore <laughs> yeah. um so number two for me is one that you, Paul, have already mentioned. I think you've done justice too. But this one is Primer from 2004 from director Shane Carruth. Now, if you haven't, um, well, seen Primer, but like if you're not aware of who this guy is in the kind of um, nerdy, like film geeky world, Shane Carruth is like some kind of demigod, I think. Because after this, uh, he made a film called Upstream Colour, which I'm not, you said like you're not trying to explain this one. I mean, don't even try and scratch the surface of Upstream <laughs> Colour without like taking a, a good old sit down and writing like a thesis on it um there's also this movie called the mod notion which has been in development for about seven millennia which is supposed to have absolutely everyone in it because everybody wants to work with the guy um and i when that's coming out who who knows but to focus on the film in question the reason that this got so high on my list primer is firstly because like the impact it had on me at the time this is like what what people would call hard sci-fi right like it, it's it's sci-fi yeah, unashamed very much like it's, yeah. it's a film that's not going to hold your hand and say like you know this this is a going to remind you about everything that's gone before flash back to the things that you know link together it's not going to explain to you how branching timelines work it's not going to talk about chaos theory in any way other than the guys mumbling something in a garage and and all you've got is like what did they make this for like 30 grand or something like barely anything if that i think uh you've got like two nerds essentially one of which is played by shane caruth who let's be honest is probably not the world's greatest actor but you know does does a decent enough job and saves money by being in this thing he's also in uh, upstream color of course um a couple of nerds in a garage and a box and this slogan the tagline for the movie that you kind of hinted at before paul which is uh what happens if it actually works and so it's this idea that you can just be doing scientific experiments with the intention of trying to push the envelope a bit further. And before you know it, you've pushed it so far that everything's gone asunder and you're walking around with an earpiece communicating with someone who's in a different time continuum telling you what to do because you already know how things are going to turn out and this will melt your brain as the film will Paul I want to leave this review by by setting you up maybe a primer if you will for the weekend that is coming up there is a person uh, like a murder mystery this is right uh, there there is a person going on the stag do who believes primer to be the worst film they have ever seen <laughs> So that let that sink right, in. Right, how about it? 
I'm going to try and I'm going to do some detective work and see how that well I say some detective work I'm just going to go in and go have you seen Primer what did you think that's my level of detective work so there'll be everyone in the stag do what do you think of Primer mate I've never heard of it and then I'll know who, think, who because, thinks Primer is the worst because Paul the thing seen. is everybody knows that before you go on like a big sort of uh, stag do social situation the best thing is to sort of plant a few seeds of discontent that could rise between the members of that group I mean that always always row. works out well it's a massive how was the stag do? Oh, it was ruined because Paul had a massive row with someone about but, Primer. But yeah, like if things do go horribly wrong, Paul, you can always go and like lie down in a kind of uh, fridge looking thing and send yourself back a few days and yeah. then just do it all again and do it a little bit better. Yeah, Primer's amazing. Um, it will, if you just stick with it, don't be a knob and roll your eyes and say that it, it's all wanky bullshit. It isn't. Shane Carruth's amazing. I can't wait for the next film. Uh, let's get off this one. What have you got next? Uh, so number two, I got... Uh, uh, Ex Machina from Alex Garland from 2014, um, which I think we've seen. I said we talked about her and sort of covered the AI, sort of the AI thing off. So there's, there's very similar themes running through a lot of these films. Actually, and my number one pick as well, in fairness. Um, but again, it's just an idea of like, uh, have we taken technology too far? Uh, and also, I think what this does very well is you've got Oscar Isaac playing this reclusive uh, kind of Elon Musk esque sort of character sort of Bill Gates' character who's like an internet billionaire uh, who's squirreled away uh, squirreled away in the middle of nowhere building a sexy Alicia Vikander robot um, which is quite and I just think it's not too much of a stretch to think that someone in the near future could squirrel away a sexy robot somewhere um, and that robot then be could become self-aware and attempt to well it's not really clear at least the, the robots, I think one of the reasons it's not going to work so well is because the robot's intentions are kind of, they're kind of left up to your own devices to, to decide really. She, she obviously wants to get out. Um, but I wouldn't say the robot's necessarily evil here, which I think is what, why X Machina works quite so well for me. Um, but again, it's just, it's just, I can't see it being a stretch. You, you see what I mean? Especially the way Elon Musk's behaving at the moment. Um, it's not a stretch to think that he's got some secret AI being built in a lab somewhere. Um, and it's at what point and again I think the, the one thing Ex Machina does really well as does the next film I'm going to talk about is the fact that with AI being developed at the rate it's being developed at what point does that being become sentient, sentient and then have feelings in their own right and should we be very wary about essentially creating are we then creating sentient life or are we creating artificial intelligence and it's it's sort of it's the boundaries of what is then uh, is then AI considered to be human? For yeah, example, where where is that line? Right? Where yeah. is that line? Where is the line between artificial intelligence and humanity? Um, and I think the, yeah, this and the next one we're going to talk about do an incredible job of uh, of addressing that. And I think that's why Ex Machina works really well. And also, I think Ex Machina does this in such a way where it doesn't do it with bombast and big explosions. It does it through. Uh, a series of very engaging conversations between Donald Gleeson and Alicia, Donald Gleeson's character and Alicia Vikander's character, and it's very engaging, very clever conversations um, that lead you to your own conclusions, basically. So yeah, that's uh, Alex Garland's ex, ex Machina from twenty fourteen at number two. <laughs> Paul, build, building on a this is your number one. It, isn't it, it is, now? but before I get there, building on a little theme, uh, I, I will name this person, name and shame this person. My sister. Uh, love her to pieces but when I went to visit her in Miami and we were on the drive from the airport back to her apartment she said to me I have just seen the worst film that I've ever seen 
And uh, so I was intrigued. It, it, ra it raised my uh, my interest. And it turned out it was Ex Machina that she described as the worst film she'd ever seen. So these are the kind of people that I associate <laughs> Paul, with Paul. I don't know how I, I make it through, to be honest. Um, making it through as a do to number one. Yes, what have you got in number on my one? List Exciting is, times. Again, just to bite your style, Paul. It's a film you've already mentioned. It is from 2013, the Spike Jones movie, Her. Um, yes. Ah, yes, okay. it's Spike Jones. Yes, it looks sensational, this movie. Some of the visual language in this film is worth like a thesis or two, but that's not really why this is on my list, I would say. Um, the final, like you were kind of talking about this when you were talking about the movie as well, Paul, like the final frontier for tech fixes, as I see it, is basically solving the problem of love. The, the very human problem of love, or more so like the lack of love. People who live in the world, no matter how much money they have and how much status, they might be lacking that companion, that other half, the person that quote unquote in sort of modern romantic parlance completes them. And what we've got in this movie is the sense that maybe technology is trying to move in quickly to sort of fill that void. And to what extent will we accept affection while suspending disbelief, right? Like how, like we were talking about this line, like how real is real? At what point can we say, oh, that's not human. I want human interaction. There are there are things at the moment that I think are connected to this really interesting, like um, that podcast audio drama series, Life After, which is all about somebody deceased living on through like a, an algorithmically generated personality from all their social media inputs uh, with... Um, yeah, like really good voice. That's really good and, and interesting and kind of based on the same idea. And like, it's amazing that someone like Spike Jones can come along and make a movie this prescient and this interesting and this um, well-realized. And then in the world, we still have the director, Drake Doremus, who has just released the movie Zoe, which deals with basically the same issue, but is almost unwatchably terrible. So, uh, you know, it, it takes all sorts in our modern world, doesn't it? Um, I mean, yeah, you mentioned it as well, Paul. Who wouldn't fall in love with like an AI operating system that was the voice of Scarlett Johansson? And it's like this, I wrote down here that Scarlett Johansson's voice is like whiskey on honey. It's kind of got this gravelly but like smooth quality to it. And in this case, we know what the embodiment of that voice is because we as an audience recognise it as Scarlett Johansson and know what she looks like. Um, pleasing on the eye, if anything, Paul. But I strongly feel that the film still makes the case that even if we didn't know what the embodied equivalence to that voice was, we, like Joaquin Phoenix's character, would be filling that in from the information that we have presented to us, right? And so, yeah, so I'm totally with you. Like, I don't think we're that far removed from a situation where this becomes incredibly thorny territory in the real world, IRL, AFK. Um, I think Her is fantastic. And I think it's one of those films, actually, that I've my appreciation for it has actually grown in the five years since it was released in 2013 slash 14. Yeah, really good. What more do we need to say? You've covered it already. What have you got at number one, sir? Uh, passengers. No, not really. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> the sting in the tail. Yeah, that was close, wasn't it? <laughs> um, no, certainly not passengers. Um, I've got, and probably unsurprising to anyone that knows me or listens to the show on a regular basis, uh, my favourite, absolute favourite film of last year, uh, Blade Runner 2049. 
Um, it's just, it's Denis Villeneuve directors, as I mentioned on the show earlier. It looks absolutely stunning. Um, it's more than a worthy sequel to a, to a very well-regarded classic sci-fi film. And if there's any series of film that deals with the lines blending between uh, what it means to be human, um, Blade Runner 2049 and as such Blade Runner are certainly those films. Um, again, I'd go back to what I was talking about in Ex Machina, where does the line stop? So it, it's, it is a replicant, is a replicant human any re, any different to being a human basically is, is what Blade well, Runner is. Well, yeah. Is. And- so, sorry to jump in for, but like add to that, add to no, that no, the Anna Diarmas character in the movie, yeah, who, so good, who is yeah, essentially yeah, like absolutely. the next step along from the Scarlett Johansson character in her, in the sense that yeah, we've just basically we've just got a voice and we've got AI and we've got like digital dust, but then we have a quote unquote embodiment because we've got this holographic uh, image of what this woman quote unquote looks like um so yeah very very much in in step with that idea yeah and i think i think i've i've had i've had well heated discussions with my sister about blade runner 2049 being sexist um and i firmly stand on the side of the fact it is not um it is uh, sci-fi and good sci-fi is always kind of takes some of takes elements from today's society and transposes them into a future so therefore you can then relate to it we live in a fairly sexist society or not whether you like it or not so therefore but and Villeneuve's addressed this himself it, again it's not a stretch to see sexy naked lady holograms wandering yeah. around the place advertising I... themselves because sex sells sex sells and actually and most technology if you look at technological leaps forward you look at vhs you look at blu-ray you look at vr actually sex sells technology first look at the internet it's it's, it's You'd be foolish to deny the fact that the vast majority of people who use the internet, the amount of porn that's consumed on the internet, is insane. So actually, sex sales and the adult industry drives technology forward at a faster rate than anything else. So really, as much as, yes, I can see that the Anna Duramas character and the way she's portrayed is sexist, she's intentionally portrayed as sexist because that's where we yeah. are. As yeah, a society, and, and I've I've often thought, Paul, that like good sci-fi kind of holds up a black mirror to society. It's almost like they could make like a series about that, where you're called black yeah, mirror. <laughs> that would be a great like like a Charlie Brooker or someone like that could do it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this whole chart kind of feels like it. It could have the adjunct to it of yeah, go watch all of the Black Mirror episodes as well. I, yeah, I think, yeah. but yeah, I think I basically agree with you on that about about that that thing. And I think my issue with 2049 isn't about really any of that. It's it's more that some of it, um, Ryan Gosling, largely related. Um, struck me as a bit sort of thudding and a little bit dull. Um, yeah, yeah, but I think, and also going so going yeah. back to that as well. The, the, what's interesting is the actual the Anna de Armas character is probably the only one probably has the most complete arc out of any character. As she's kind of learn discovering the outside world when she's allowed to take her first steps outside the, and she kind of falls in love with the Ryan Gosling with Agent K. Um, and yeah, it's, I think she's one of the more, more fleshed out characters oh, in the film, yeah. in fairness. And again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, pun, no pun intended. But um, yeah, and again, like Ryan Gosling's character, is like, is he, a rep- is he a human? Is he a replicant? And ultimately, it's like, does it matter? Really, does it matter whether he is or he isn't? And what is the difference really between mm-hmm. the two? Um, and yeah, and I think, you know, the, the, like the, the tagline of the company is we make them, we make replicants more human than human. 
Um, so yeah, I just think if you want a film that explores what is humanity and AI and the balance of you know the balance of whether androids or robots can ever be human, uh, I think Blade Runner twenty four nine for me nails it perfectly, and that's why it's at my number one spot. And and we've come full circle, Paul, because of course we saw that for the first time together on your stag do in like the greatest we cinema did, yes. screening in, in in recent memory. <laughs> yeah. So um yeah no good good pick and uh, and and definitely a movie that I mean if you've missed that and you're a sci fi fan you're an idiot so you know get get on top of it um <laughs> i don't i don't know do you know if 2049 is streaming at the moment or is it still just disc uh don't know whether it's streaming i think you, you'll be able yeah, to rent yeah, yeah. it from anywhere you stream film so um but yeah watch it if you can find it on 4k or have a 4k tv trust me the 4k blu-ray is absolutely staggering of blade runner 2049 so yeah well well trust trust me paul trust me that that is the end of our chart and we've got to both of our number ones um, respectively her for me and um blade runner 24 for paul and we will be back in just a moment to wrap up with a little discussion of what makes good sci-fi so yeah what well pete what does make good sci-fi <laughs> well you know, coming into this discussion, Paul, and like I say, we'll keep it relatively brief because we can bore everybody to tears. I think we've we've covered a lot of it in our in our top five as well. In fairness, but we have, yeah. I mean, I I was trying to find like something reliable as a gauge of like what the public think is good sci-fi, and then the IMDb sort of let me down there. Um, so I've come to a timeout countdown of what are regarded to be the greatest by like filmmakers and critics and stuff combined, the greatest sci-fi films of all time. And I thought I'd mention a few of them, and then maybe that would lead us in to talking about what makes those things stand out as so great one of them almost goes without saying uh, as you've just been talking about it but number two on this chart is Blade Runner from 1982 um, so themes that you've discussed probably covered there uh, number one of course 2001 A Space Odyssey it doesn't fit into the bracket for our chart but this is a film that obviously again goes without saying we both are big fans of if you look at a film like 2001 and think about the fact that this was released, you know, all those years ago, or 50 years ago. What makes something like that not only work, but also resonate for like years I think after? It just, it's for me, like very sort of good or sort of high, for want of a better term, highbrow sci fi. Um, it just makes you think. Like it actually engages you and makes you question mm. what's going on on the screen. Like, and you know, as you know, I'm a massive Star Wars fan and make no bones about loving Star Wars. But for me, 2001 is a far superior science fiction film. I, mean, I suppose it's, it's different genres, really. I would say Star Wars is more space opera than straight up sort of science fiction. Um, and again, the, the, the fact that 2001, I think part of the reason that 2001 resonates is like the way the, the ships, the spaceships are designed. It, it, it's not the beyond the realms of possibility that that mission could happen. Um, so that I, that I think mm. really adds to it. There's, there's a sense of believability there. There's there's a grounding in kind of. And I think it's especially, much like horror, it's kind of a reflection of its time. So at the time when 2001 came out, there was there was still like a big focus on the space race and that kind of thing. We were still very excited about that. And there was there was regular space flights and all this kind of thing. It was very exciting. So it, it captured the mood, certainly the mood of uh, people at the time. And I think that helps and keeps things feeling keeps things feeling relevant as, as they age. But certainly 2001 just kind of, it just makes you think like it doesn't give you a, a cut and dried it doesn't give you a cut and dried answer at the end as to what as to what's going on uh which is great everyone has their own theories on it um and again it's you know the fact that the fact that we we are still we've still got film we've got films like Tau and that kind of thing and I'm not trying to compare Tau to 2001 but you look at the Howl character 
Yeah, many this many have said two thousand and one. Yeah, but you look at the, the character of how the the the, um, the malfunction in AI and how many times have we seen that again after after two thousand and one? Like it's absolutely iconic, and you see that the red essentially what is just a red light, and you know that that's two thousand and one. So yeah, I think yeah, it's, and that and that yeah, you're right, and and that red light is is representative of the sort of general. Uh, increasingly conscious blinking eye of technology yeah. at large, right? Like when you go back to that movie now, you go back to it with the knowledge of all the things that have come since, and you see the threat of that branching out way beyond the confines of you know 1968 and that that particular period of history and and sort of film history. So yeah, it's something um, very elemental and sort of fundamental, I think, to see this little red light that is representative of of what is such a defining element of our modern world yeah now. absolutely and i think that's part of the reason that resonates and i think going you know if we take 2001 as jumping off point that's that for me is, is a wider example of what makes good sci-fi is stuff that's this that's relevant to, to things that are going on today um and if if you look at i mean yeah you look at where we are now i said how talking computers that's that's they, they exist now and you look at so many things that have appeared in sci-fi um throughout the ages and now like commonplace like if you look at sort of mobile phones, they're not too far dissimilar from the communicators you had in Star Trek, or um, you know, a, a lot of the technology we see uh, it, it does come does come to in sci-fi uh, does come to pass. So that's I think one of the powerful things about science fiction is it can actually you know it's, it seems to be very good at predicting where humanity is going in terms of technology technological advances and things like that. And I think that really that really that really for me makes makes good sci-fi is something that you can can relate to and you put a bit of thought into it i think and, and i suppose then less in that sense less so a black mirror than a black telescope uh trademark <laughs> that's going to be my new television series um yeah I, I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned paul which was that like um the sci-fi of an age is often a sort of reflector yeah. of that age as you were talking about with, with 2001 because looking through this chart and for what it's worth it just starts our discussion this timeout chart if we were looking only at films that would have qualified for our countdown, so post the year 2000, the first entry that qualifies is actually down at number 14. Um, and this is a film from 2009 from Duncan it's Jones, moon, the, the son, of course, of, of David Bowie. Uh, this is Moon. And what I wanted to say here is that, like, at the centre of Moon, you've got this, like, really quiet story. It's basically Sam Rockwell on his own with technology to interface with uh to keep communication and, and, and contact and one thing this made me think of um in in i just thinking about this discussion is that one of to me the preeminent concerns of modern man is isolation yeah. and the way that the more that we're connected the more that often we're separate yes we might be connected to the entire world through our internet connection at home or in the office but at the same time we can be entirely lonely and i remember often visualizing my situation when i and you know you can you can punch me in the guts later for bringing this up again but no i've never heard about this when I lived in Korea, like sometimes when I was going through lower moments and moments of feeling quite disconnected and quite isolated or sort of struggling uh, a little bit through, through rocky patches, I often visualize that as like I'm on a space station and I can communicate with home because I have 
technology. I have Skype, for example, for free calling, video calling, even back to my friends and family at home. But really, I feel like I'm like floating through space and I'm on this space station. That's very much what Moon is about. And so I think that it's a film that resonates with people, not least because we connect with the isolation of a person. We don't need to be in space to feel like we're on a space station. We don't need to be disconnected by thousands upon thousands of miles to feel like we're fundamentally disconnected from like our fellow man. So I just thought that was kind of interesting that we're not only looking here at what you mentioned quite rightly, which is like, you know, prevailing trends in technology or what the future might hold, but also like you mentioned, what's actually going on now and how can our sci-fi cinema tell us something about that or at least make us think in a different way or, or, or reflect a little bit more yeah for sure that. yeah no uh, yeah absolutely. does that make yeah. sense again, it's just yeah it's, it's kind of rooting it in rooting science fiction in humanity i think is the key is the key is the key to for me to make it a success and and i suppose then maybe a cap capper on this this discussion is is a third area uh, like our three-act show i guess which is uh, often the fears and concerns of sci-fi movies are related to war right coming war technological war uh, the uprising of the robots, Terminator, if anything, Paul. Yeah, Terminator, Terminator One, Matrix, Terminator yeah. Two, and the way that there yeah. will be some kind of yeah, some kind of future war. And of course, war is something that you know has existed throughout human history. But I just wonder, like, for you, I guess my the question that I would get to that's worth anything here is like, how worried do you feel when you watch sci-fi that touches on things that might be future? timelines that might be future possibilities and that might ultimately reflect a, a growing conflict well, I'll, in I'll be honest and I'll give you I'll give you a deep and meaningful answer that that question deserves Pete uh, I, I initially mm. am terrified and then I go oh my god how fucking cool is that Terminator <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm with you I'm yeah. totally with you on I'm that. Like, if that if we get wiped out by robots that look that badass then I'll be happy <laughs> yeah yeah and I mean I guess there's even like more um grounded sci-fi stuff uh, like Children of Men. It's another one that comes up, which I didn't think about for the list, but 2006. And Alfonso Caron, of course, has gone on to do Gravity, which I could gush about for ages. But like here, um, and again, a brilliantly told story, but a story that is concerned with things that feel very close to the bone. And I think this touches again on something about sci-fi that works so well is that you can tell a story and like you say you look at the story you think like this is incredibly cool and involving and interesting and visually stimulating and then also it's kind of it's kind of scratching at you a little bit sometimes it's kind of like making you feel a sense of discomfort because you recognize in it things that seem to be playing out in your normal life or in in the world around you right and this has all come off very negative How, can you think paul to, to finish can you think of like sci-fi anything sci-fi a movie a moment or something that you feel is like fundamentally positive and has come up in the last 15 or Star 20 Wars. years <laughs> yeah no, Star I mean, Wars. That, whatever you look, whatever you think of the last if you whatever you think of the last jedi uh it, you've got you've got to give them credit for, we, we, we've talked about sort of We've talked about, I think, in, when we talked about the Meg, about kind of cynical uh, casting diversity. Uh, Star Wars doesn't do cynical casting diversity. Star Wars is just become incredibly good at casting diversity now. And, you know, the message of Star Wars is good will triumph over evil. Um, and that's very, you know, you can't get any more positive a message than that, really. Um, and, you know, and you look at the way the Jedi's use the Force and, like, respect all other living things and that kind of thing. So there's, there, are, there is positivity. Uh, for sure, it's. I would say, 
it's more the the positivity is more in the realm of the space opera kind of sci-fi than it is about the kind of what I would just the well for want of a better description I suppose hard sci-fi um but yeah there is positivity there and Star Wars is kind of the ultimate exercise in that I think yeah I mean yeah that that there's fundamental positivity that good will triumph over evil in the end as long as we can monetize this to within an inch of its <laughs> life and all the kids are taking Star Wars lunch but, I mean, it's cool. also, but if yeah. you look at good transferring over evil um, the Avengers Infinity War you can you can you can call that a comic book movie until you're blue in the face but it's a space opera like it's full it's yeah, full and I, blown and I don't know why you would sci-fi like as as soon as your face starts to go blue i would i would stop calling it a comic book movie for fear of my own health but um yeah yeah i agree i mean like thinking about that question as well i, I think of like going way back to stuff that we've talked about like um silent running and like a guy who is in that case bruce dern who is like concerned about protecting the ecological element of his ship over all other things and you know floating out to space and the kind of hopelessness and depression that that film brought on in some ways so that's probably not as positive as i thought it was going to be yeah um i i think maybe my takeaway here is paul that sci-fi is leans towards fear and leans towards societal concerns and sort of leads towards this black mirror or black telescope on the, on the future of our society but that in itself isn't a bad thing because i think we need to be you know awake enough to maybe make a difference to the course that we're taking as a, as a society, right? Yeah, I agree. And I think if, you know, that it's, it's, a, it's the age-old argument of, of can films uh, have an impact? Can films have an impact on us? And should they, you know, should they have an impact on us? Uh, yes, they absolutely should. And good art, good art on any, from any sort of, what am I thinking? Good art from any genre or any format. I've lost the words. I've lost the words here. But yeah, good art should have an impact on us. And yes, we should, you know, we there is... It, there is uh, an argument to say that filmmakers have a responsibility to be teaching us things uh, in their artwork, and sci-fi is one of the best dramas at doing that, I think. So, yeah, uh, which is one of the reasons I love and it And then so it seems incredibly fitting, Paul, to... fit Mediums. I was looking mediums. for other mediums love it. of art. That's the uh, I was looking it for. It feels Sorry. incredibly fitting and apt to, to finish our, our show uh, sort of somewhat decrying the... Um, possibilities of being absorbed by all of this future tech and, and stuff by saying uh, please follow us on instagram on twitter get in touch via our email which is at strangers cinema uh sorry strangers in the cinema at gmail.com i should say um but further than that make sure that you maintain solid face-to-face -face relationships with your loved ones and the people in your lives because you know a world without love without human emotion that's not a world where i would want to live is it paul um so yeah, I I think that um, the takeaway is tell all your friends about our podcast. It's right good, isn't it? We had a good time today, didn't we, Paul? We did. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, not quite as good a time as we're going to have at the weekend, Pete, I'm oh, sure. But uh, yes. Preach, brother. <laughs> preach. Uh, yeah, we'll be back with, with tales of the, the one of the most dangerous cities on earth uh, on next week's show and more filmic goodness. Until then, yeah, keep your eyes out on our social media and stuff like that. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next Bye. time. Shut up and sit down.